Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. I am joined today by Mike Ashton, the inflation guy of Enduring Investments. Mike, welcome. Good to be back here yet again, Stuart. It's so nice to see you. And normally on, on these podcasts, the guest has talking points, or I do, or somebody does, and you and I do these things completely ad lib. And it's always fun. And I, and, and I guess we talked about maybe the yield curve. But before we do that, the Fed's been aggressive to this point. And well, I shouldn't say my opinion is <laughs> that the Fed's been fairly aggressive. And the economic readings that they go off of, there's a timing difference, right? And it's always this question of, oh, have they gone far enough? Is it too much? And so I was reading an article about upcoming CPI release. Where do you think the Fed is? Where do you think they are in terms of their policy moves to this point? The real problem we have with the Fed is that, you know, they're they're kind of like the, you know, the doctor from the 1840s. That they don't really understand the body, they don't understand how this all works, and so their medicine is, you know, equal parts voodoo and and wishful thinking. <laughs> and um, and so so the Fed. The it's Fed a good thing no large corporation owns either one of us because <laughs> that, <laughs> that would not make it through compliance. I'm one. I'm thinking. <laughs> but I agree with you. I think I think I think you're right. You know, the, the Fed has only just started tightening. Now everyone thinks that oh well, look, the, you know, they've shot up interest rates, you know, several hundred basis points, and that's true. But that's not the important part. I mean, that that will do a great job, but. You know, throwing people out of work and and you know raising expenses for uh, you know people who are borrowing money and, and things like that, but it does very it does very little to quell inflation. Inflation is all about the quantity of money, and you know M two over the last month or two has been flat, but you know it had gone up forty three percent or something since the beginning of COVID, and and that means that all else being equal, you expect the the price level to go up you know, close to 40%. And and it has really nothing to do with interest rates. I mean, raising interest rates accelerates money and it actually makes things worse. But the Fed doesn't know that. They haven't cared about money since, you know, the early 90s. And so they're not addressing the right thing. And so they will succeed in, you know, cracking the economy, no question about it. Whether or not, you know, and inflation will come down because that's kind of what inflation, you know, does. It goes up, it goes down. And if they can keep money supply going flat for a while, then eventually, you know, once we've we've moved to the new price level, then eventually inflation will slow back down. But they're just sort of targeting the wrong thing. And so if they get the outcome that they desire, it will be purely by chance. There's very little chance we're going to have inflation next year down in the twos. That's everybody's forecast. And it's just very unlikely to happen. And so, I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, I don't think institutional investors think this way, but I, I know that a lot of retail investors think this way, that the Fed sets interest rates, right? The Fed doesn't set interest rates. The Fed sets the overnight lending rate, one rate they'd set directly, right? And then the idea is, and I geek out on this conversation, right? So the Fed sets the overnight lending rate, and that determines the cost of borrowing to banks. And then that somehow or the other ripples through and impacts the cost of borrowing for lots of other people. But that does not 
the shape of the yield curve is not set by the Fed's decision on on Fed funds rates, right? All the stuff we're talking about with the Fed has all changed in the last couple of decades. So it used to be the Fed didn't even set the short rate. They set reserve conditions, and that caused movements in the short rate. And then they decided they don't really need to actually change reserves. They just need to tell everyone what the new short rate is. But you're right. That in and of itself doesn't do anything to the shape of the yield curve and to, to long lending rates unless – and again, you know, the Fed has over the last decade or so done Operation Twist, where they buy long bonds and sell short bonds and whatever in an attempt to affect long lending rates and, and things like that. They're just kind of messing around. They're kind of like pulling on a tree branch, aren't they? I mean, they're holding it down, they're pushing it up. But at the end of the day, the, the, the tree branch is the tree branch, right? And that's right. And again, all of this really does is it changes. So let's just suppose that they could change long lending rates. What does that do for inflation? Well, okay, so that increases the cost of money to banks. And then banks increase, then the, the cost, you know, the interest rate associated with loans. And then the question becomes a microeconomic one of which is more, you know, is uh, demand for money elastic or inelastic with interest rates? You know, banks become much more eager to lend at higher interest rates, you know. <laughs> so do people become, you know, violently less willing to borrow? And, you know, we don't really know what elasticity of, of demand for loans is near zero interest rates, but you wouldn't think it's going to be very large. You would think that the immediate response would be much less borrowing from highly levered borrowers like hedge funds. But the the corporation that's, you know, borrowing at 8%, when interest rates are at zero, okay, now they're borrowing at, you know, 10%. That really probably doesn't change very much. You know, again, you know, mega companies aside that very carefully manage their uh, their cost of, of capital, but smaller companies, individuals, moving interest rates a percent or two when interest rates, you know, are, are kind of low, doesn't really do a whole hell of a lot. Does it affect mortgages? Does it affect your your desire to go buy a, a new home? Yeah, probably. It affects how much home you can you can buy. But but again, that doesn't. What does that do to the to the price of grain? I mean, it, it does it doesn't have any direct effect on a lot of these things. No, but it, it's interesting though because it gets a lot of attention by the public media. Well, let me say one other thing though, yeah. um, because it's an important um, next step. So what I just said are all ways that raising interest rates could affect growth, okay? So it will affect demand for houses. It will affect demand for cars if auto loans go up. How much it will, we don't know, but it will affect growth. And so although the Fed is is going to cause a recession, growth is going to go down, there is no natural connection between growth and inflation. We act like there is. And the reason we think there is, is that recessions cause energy prices to go down and therefore headline inflation goes down. So if you just do a simple correlation, then because energy is most of the volatility in, in headline inflation, it looks like there's a correlation between expansions and recessions and inflation. But if you take away energy, that goes away. And so you can, you can look at the 70s and have two massive recessions and also massive inflation with it. By the way, as an aside, we had two massive recessions in the 70s, and home prices never went up less than 3%. So, you know, raising mortgage costs and, and having deep recessions is no guarantee that, 
that home prices or the prices of anything go down. And that's an unspoken assumption that we're making when we say, yes, the Fed is succeeding in causing a recession. Okay, but that has nothing to do with inflation. Inflation is all about money. The price level is tied to the amount of money and period, full stop. And if the Fed is not affecting the quantity of money in circulation, they are not going to affect the price level. Whenever we talk, I I have to unlearn or rethink <laughs> some things that I have kind of in my head, right? Which is supply and demand, the amount of money chasing goods changes the price level, right? That's my kind of core assumption. And when people start talking about recession in the mainstream media, how much of the psychological impact of that results in a decline in demand? And does that slow inflation any just what I've always, maybe this is a, a prehistoric term, jawboning <laughs> it down? So when we start thinking about economics and supply and demand, all that stuff, we have to be careful that there's two shortcuts that we make that we have to be very careful that we don't make when we're thinking about inflation. And one is the micro-macro distinction. Macroeconomics is not the sum of all microeconomics. And so you look at aggregate supply, aggregate demand, you don't just sum up all the supply and demand curves. That's not that's not how it works. It's not how the theory works. And by the way, that's not how the the aggregate economy works. So and so, but we tend to think about things, you know, we look at the the local barbershop and we say, okay, well, if we you know, raise the, the, the price X dollars, then what's that do to the, the amount of haircuts we, we make? Well, gee, that must then be the same effect in the, when we make that general uh, movement in the economy and we raise the prices for, you know, we restrict the supply of this and you know, the overall supply. And that doesn't aggregate like that. And so that's one mistake. And the other mistake that, that we make or the shortcut we make is that because we, the way we, we all learned our P's and Q's, our, our price and quantity curves, the supply and demand curves, was in, in units that were never kind of really stated, just they were dollars, prices and quantity, whatever. But they need to be real. They, they can't be, you know, because when you're looking at micro and all the supply and demand curves, you're tending to talk about instantaneous shifts. And in instantaneous shifts, the question of whether it's a real quantity or a nominal quantity doesn't matter. But these aren't instantaneous shifts. And so what we care about is what happens to the real supply and demand curve, what happens to the real price of something. And so if you have an equilibrium, okay, and you have an equilibrium at the microeconomic level, then you'd say, okay, then the price should never change and the quantity should never change. But because it's a real quantity, the reality is, so your haircut, you know, your haircut does go up in price over time with the quantity of money. So the real price of the haircut may stay unchanged, but the nominal price of the haircut goes up even if there's an equilibrium in the microeconomic sense. So anyway, those are those are things that they're easy shortcuts we make, they're cognitive errors, and they're cognitive errors that get made on the <laughs> in terms of the global financial press. Wall Street economists make these mistakes. They're very common mistakes because we learn the shortcuts. And by the way, partly because for the last 25 years, it didn't matter what your access was because nominal and real were about the same. If these cognitive errors about inflation and how we think about it and talk about it are that common, 
is being correct important, right? Are we talking about it in the wrong way? Is that why we're surprised at when we get these outsized inflation numbers? Like all of a sudden, holy smokes, how'd this happen? Absolutely. The whole transitory thing was just an error from the word go. I mean, it was it was immediately obvious that that was that was wrong. And and, we, and, and actually, I think you and I talked about it back then. We it did. Obviously, it wasn't transitory because but the only reason you would think it was transitory is that you saw there were supply constraints. And so, OK, well, as soon as we clean up those supply constraints. But that was because there was, you know, huge amounts of demand because they flushed lots of money in the system. So it was really obvious what was causing it. But if you look at, and by the way, you know, if you look at a supply and demand curve and you figure out if you move the demand out, then you get higher price and higher quantity. So it was obvious it was a demand shift, not a supply shift. And, but that was a really super common error that the Federal Reserve, largest single employer of economists in the world, made that mistake. And it was, it's a super easy, it was super easy to see that was wrong. It was wrong on day one. And yet so many people made that mistake. And I guess you can be cynical and say, maybe the Fed didn't really think it was. They were trying to, like you say, jawbone it down. But the other mistake that they tend to make, by the way, and the reason they spend a lot of time jawboning is that they believe that inflation expectations play a major role in setting inflation. And there's no evidence that that's true either. I love to give credit where credit is due. And on your last podcast, you said inflation would not come down. Prices would not be would not go down when these supply chain issues drive uh, cleared up. And you were right as rain in the Allstate commercial uh, guy says tens and tens of views. Whoever heard that, you know, needs to send you an email and give you some props because you were you were right on the money. Well, I appreciate it. Look, individual markets, in individual markets, you have supply constraints that get cleared up and then prices you know, do come down. Part of it is, is supply, obviously, but in the main, but you knew they wouldn't go back to the former level. So right now we're seeing used car prices decline, but they went up an enormous amount. If they go down 10% because you're clearing up some, some supply constraints or you've got too much, whatever, that's in the normal ebb and flow. The absolute price level has changed. And so, you know, the net result is you should expect all prices at the end of this episode to be 30 to 40% higher on average than the prices were at the beginning of the episode, because that's where money is. When they pumped all this money in the system, and you're saying that inflation is tied directly to the amount of money that's pumped in. Why are we messing around with raising rates when is the more straightforward answer, suck some of that money back out? The way it always was done until the last you know, 15, 20 years was that we would change the quantity of money. We would, you know, the Fed would go in and do match sales. They would sell bonds from their, uh, either make outright sales from their portfolio and then take in the money, which essentially takes it out of circulation, or that they would do match sales, which is a reverse repo where they they repo out bonds and take money off the street. And that's the way they always did it. And now they don't do that anymore. But that is how you manage the money supply. And that is what we should have been doing. And it's what we should be doing going forward if what we want to do is to, is to rein in inflation. Now, this rapid increase in interest rates 
it has coincided anyway with the money supply growth going to zero for the last couple of months. And, and so the year-on-year money supply growth rate has declined quite a bit. And is, is it something close to stability if they were able to sort of you know, keep, that, keep that going? But it's, it's unclear how much of that's really related to the fact that they changed the price of money. So again, so I, I guess the, the way to think about this is the Fed is concentrating on the price of money when they should be concentrating on the quantity of money. And changing the quantity of money does change its price, but it's not at all clear that changing its price causes a change in the quantity, <laughs> if that makes sense. And why do you think the Fed stopped worrying about the quantity of money, I think you said 15 to 20 years ago, what was the catalyst for that change? You know, we have to remember for the last quarter century, there were all these positive demographic effects and and globalization effects and things that were, you know, kept the overall level of inflation lower than it otherwise would have been for the amount of money growth we had for for many years we had money growth you know six seven eight percent which absent those one-time but large effects would have resulted in more inflation than we actually got and so the fed kind of when inflation was low and stable the correlation between money growth and inflation goes down and that's that's a quantitative effect when you're talking about about small changes in things, and it becomes mostly noise and less signal. And so they came to believe that the movements and the quantity of money were not all that important. And maybe for really small changes, it isn't all that important. All major inflations that have happened anywhere, let's let's leave aside hyperinflations, which often have other causes, but but all major inflations, you know, the teens, those all are associated with an increase in the quantity of money. And so maybe the Fed believed that we were in this permanently low inflation level. And so wiggles in, in the money supply didn't matter very much. I don't know. I know some guy just won a Nobel Prize for, for his discovery that helicopter money, you know, was good. But um, it was Ben Bernanke. For those listeners who have not heard that Ben Bernanke just won a Nobel Prize. I saw that this morning. And it was uh, along with somebody from uh, Washington University and my alma mater, the University of Chicago. But sure enough, Ben Bernanke, Helicopter Ben, uh, <laughs> Helicopter Ben, what is his nickname, right? I mean, that was his nickname. That's absolutely. And he got a Nobel Prize for this paper that he wrote, I think, in 1983. Is that the one? I think that's right. I, I, you know, the Nobel Prize is always, it's always awarded for something in particular, but it's also kind of a, a lifetime achievement award in, in a lot of cases, right? So, you know, Bob Schiller was awarded, awarded it for an early 1980s paper, but, but he really got it because of a lifetime achievement of, award of, of discovering lots of things. So, but, but with Ben Bernanke, it's more like a Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, it's, 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 you know, like, thank you, Ben, for saving us. Let's, here's a Nobel Prize. Like, all you did was, was prove that throwing lots of money at banks during a financial crisis means the system doesn't collapse. Like, well, yeah, we kind of knew that. But. Yeah, he proved it. He did. Let's talk about currencies for a second. What's going on with the pound sterling and all that business? you know, huge moves, you know, what's driving all this currency business? Well, if I knew exactly what was driving all the currency uh, 
the currency moves and I wouldn't be talking to you because I would just be at sitting on a be sitting on a beach somewhere as a billionaire. But just trade um, just trading it on your on your phone. I like it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But there's sort of two effects with currencies and and it's really it took me years to sort of get my arms around this. So in the long term, what drives relative currency valuations is is essentially the relative quantities of those of those two currencies, right? So if you have the reason you that diamonds are so expensive relative to water isn't because you need diamonds more, but because there's great scarcity of diamonds relative to water. And the same thing happens in currencies. If you want to, you know, see if you can deep depreciate the you know XYZ peso, then print scads of them and they will depreciate. The reason that the Zimbabwe dollar is not worth very much is that there's a whole lot of Zimbabwe dollars out there. And so, you know, for developed countries, that long run doesn't tend to be a major move because we don't tend to, you know, our money supplies don't tend to diverge a ton. The U.S. doesn't have a 30% money supply growth while, you know, Japan has a a 5%, you know, 10% money growth. Oh, wait, we did briefly, but, um, (laughs) but, but that over a long period of time, that doesn't tend to happen in developed, in developed countries. And so, but in the long run, that's kind of where, you know, how you get currencies that diverge quite a ways from other currencies. And that's partly what's happening in the UK and and in Europe. Part of what's happening is the long-term effect that, that right now they have a very high inflation rate, but the relative quantities of money haven't changed a ton. And so some of that is is sort of temporary. But but that's part of what's happening is sort of losing a little bit of confidence in sort of what that outcome is going to be. But in the short run, a lot of what drives currencies, and this is the part that was always hard for me to understand and to, to get my arms around, is you know relative short-term interest rates. And right now, the Federal Reserve has been much more aggressive in terms of you know the cost, the price of money than other central banks have. And so that has strengthened the U.S. dollar relative to all these other central banks. And at the point where the Federal Reserve starts to taper and everyone else is still tightening, then the dollar is going to is going to reverse that and and give up at least some of what it has gained against its other currencies. But the UK has another whole kettle of fish that I think will end up resolving itself. But you know, you do worry about it. And and that's that you know you have the government and and central bank doing things which look sort of spastic and which will tend to lower your confidence that they know what the hell they're doing. And I think that's part of what you're seeing in the UK, in the UK specifically is, and, uh, and, and you can see in the interest rate market is, is a loss of confidence that the people in charge know what they're doing. But again, I think that'll probably eventually calm down in the same way that the whole Brexit scare eventually, you know, eventually uh, washed out. So we're coming up on time here. What's your prognostication your forecast, your next, you'll be back next quarter, I hope. Where are we today and what do you see in the next uh, three months here for the economy and what are you expecting on the inflation print? And give us a look into your crystal ball and give us a little bit of outlook, please. Sure. So growth-wise, you know, there's no question we're in a recession or heading for a recession. And I've said this for a while. We've never had energy prices go up like energy prices did and interest rates go up like interest rates have gone up 
and not had a recession. So we're going to have a recession. If we're not already in one, we're heading towards it. And I kind of thought it would really bite in you know, the early part of next year, but maybe we're already getting to it sooner. I don't, I'm not exactly sure on the timing of it. No question about that. But inflation is, you know, we're going to end core inflation or median inflation in the sixes for this year. And I think it's going to be in the fives for next year. Maybe it'll be the high fours, but it's not going down to two because we haven't yet fully adjusted the price level. Now, in the meantime, we're going to have, you know, rents are starting to slow down a little bit. The thing which is most concerning when you look at the CPI report and you look at, at the breakdown of what ca- what's causing inflation to be high, there's been sort of this, this evolution. We started and it was core goods. It was those used cars. It was all those things clogged up at the ports that made people think transitory. And that was the first thing that happened. And that's because we were all shut down and we were mostly buying goods. And that is the easiest thing to do with money is to go buy goods. And so that was the first thing that happened. As that ebbed, then the eviction moratorium ended. And so rents started catching up to where they should have been. Home prices you know, were skyrocketing. And so rents have been coming up and rents are a nice, slow, stable part of that. And they've gone up you know, more than most people were expecting. They will eventually come down, but not immediately. But they won't kind of keep going up at, at the rate they've been going up. But they're not going to go down to 2% either. But what's happened recently, the, the most recent potential handoff, and, and we'll see if this is in the CPI we're about to get that I guess we will have already gotten when, when this uh, podcast drops, and over the next couple of months, is core services X rents. And so, and I'll tell you why that matters in a second, but that category is, well, it's core services X rents of shelter. So it's things like medical care, household services, you know, things that you, the services you pay people for. And that has started to accelerate after a long, long time of being low and kind of you know, gradually decelerating over the last decade or so. And now it has started to go up aggressively. Now, why does that matter? Why is that potentially interesting? If you were going to see a wage price spiral, I always put that in quotes because I'm not sure exactly what, what that means. But if you're, if you're looking for a feedback loop where high inflation causes higher wages, which then causes more inflation, that's the part you'd see it in. You wouldn't see it in goods. You would see it in core services, X rents. And so when you look at what median wages have been doing, they've been going up and they had been going up for a little while. And then we started to see this increase, this acceleration in core services, X rents. That's the part that's carrying the ball now, I think. And again, to be confirmed, but if that's the case, then that means that that sort of adds more momentum to the whole process and will be something where by January of next year, you'll finally have economists saying, well, maybe we won't come down to 2% in 23. So that's what I'm, I'm watching right now. And I, so again, I think inflation is going to stay you know, uncomfortably high for a while, not nine, but you know, in the fours and fives for a while. Great advice, man. I love it. I always get a great education when we talk and, uh, and I really appreciate it. I always, I feel like I know what I'm doing when it comes to this kind of stuff. And I often find that I've got a lot to learn. I will just say to you, it's the first time I've ever heard of core services X rent. Is that what it's called? Yeah. There's, there's a couple of different ways. There's lots of ways you can slice the, uh, the CPI number, but, but the way I like to do it is food and energy, so these are all roughly a quarter, a little bit more, a little bit less, but these four pieces are food and energy, core goods, that's goods X food and energy, core services other than rents and rents. And that's kind of the 
four four big pieces, with rents being the slowest moving and the easiest to forecast of them all. And honestly, core services x rents being something which is um, it's very heterogeneous. There's there's lots of weird things which don't move together. You know, a lot of core goods move together. Core services x rents don't necessarily move together. And when they start to move together, like they are now it's generally because of things like wages pushing everything up together. So, so that's the reason that it matters. I mean, ordinarily, honestly, nine times out of 10, I don't pay attention to that part of CPI hardly at all because it doesn't do, you know, I'll look at medical care and that's it, but it's starting to become more, um, more interesting and not in a good way. Great education, man. I love it. Mike, thanks for being on. Mike Ashton, known as the inflation guy from Enduring Investments. Mike, thank you. Thanks very much, Stuart. I'll see you again next quarter. I sure hope so. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email me at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast. Podcast.